it's stunning to walk in this room and see you all um, this this early. But more more than just early, it's it's amazing to see that you come to study God's word, and uh, that's that is really terrific. I'm, I am really honored to be here this morning. Sandy is a dear friend and um, has been for many many years. You may uh, some of you may know that Sandy and I are part of a group of pastors and seminary types that get together every um, year in October um, outside of Atlanta, and we spend about two and a half days just kind of sharing our lives and talking about what's really important to us. And this group has about 12 or 15 guys in it. It's really been very, very significant for me, very important over the years, and it's where I've gotten to know and appreciate uh, Sandy a great deal. You know, um, uh, Speaking of Sandy, I, I should tell you something maybe about Sandy that you don't know, since he's not here. Would that be good? Yeah, I don't think it qualifies as gossip, uh, because it's in some parts of the country it's publicly known. Therefore, it's not gossip, all right? Before Sandy was a, a minister of, of a church, like Second Presbyterian here, uh, he was an itinerant preacher. Uh, he, he was an evangelist, and he used to go around and, and you know, uh, have, hold tent meetings in various communities uh, throughout Tennessee and uh, Alabama and, you know, Mississippi. And uh, what he would do is he would go to town, and he would uh, set up his tent, and uh, he'd do it all by himself. I mean, it was a big tent. I mean, it was about as big as this room, you know, and he did it himself, and uh, then he'd go out in the afternoon, he'd pass out flyers about coming to the big revival that night that was going to go on in that tent. And, uh, and then he'd you know, wait for the, the crowds to come. Well, one time he did that in a, in a small town somewhere in the mountains of uh, East Tennessee, I think it was. And he uh, uh, went to this town. He set up the tent. It was a lot of work to do by himself, but he did it. And uh, then he went and he passed out flyers all over town. He got ready. And he got there that night, and only one guy showed up, one person, one man. And he kind of sat right out there in the middle. And so Sandy gets up at the appointed time, and he looks, and he just says, oh, man, this is terrible. I'm so sorry. So he goes back to the guy, and he says, you know, I'm so sorry that I obviously didn't get the word around well enough here, and I apologize uh, to you. Because, uh, you know, I was really hoping for a good crowd. But you come back tomorrow night and I'll, you know, I'll really, we'll have a crowd here. And the, the man said, well, sir, uh, I'm, a, I'm not a preacher, I'm a farmer. But, you know, if I go out into my field and there's only one cow out there, I, I won't not feed that one cow because there's only one. And Sandy said, Wow, you are right. I am so sorry. That was bad thinking on my part. I'm going to preach you a sermon. He gets up there and he just goes. He preaches and he preaches and he preaches a long, long sermon. And, uh, and he, he gives it at all. I mean, you know, he was sweating by the time he was done. It was, it was powerful. It was good. and It was long. All right. So he goes to the back of the tent, you know, by the door of the tent to, to greet his parishioner as the parishioner leaves. And as the guy's going out, he's, Sandy says, well, <clears throat> how'd you like it? And uh, the guy said, well, sir, uh, I'm not a preacher. I'm a farmer. You know, if I went out into my field and 
there was only one cow out there, I wouldn't give him all my hay. It's really easy for uh, preachers to tell preacher stories on one another, especially when one of them isn't there. Um, Here's what I propose to do uh, together for this week and the next two weeks before Sandy gets back. Um, I'd like us to look really at the end at one verse for three weeks and come at it from a couple different angles. This is a little different than what you're used to. Uh, Sandy is a fabulous Bible teacher, as uh, I think we all know, and I believe he's taking you through the book of Galatians this coming year, and that is going to be very good. But uh, rather than my jumping into something Sandy was going to do and then having to correct me, you know, uh, I'm going to do something different, and I'm just going to focus on, in the end, one verse. But I want to set it up for you by uh, asking if you've got your Bibles and you want to open them, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4. Um, toward the end of the chapter. Now, what's been going on here is we're still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're at the beginning of Matthew. And we are, uh, we're seeing Jesus begin to unfold the nature of his ministry. He is uh, baptized uh, by John the Baptist. He then goes out into the wilderness and experiences the temptations. The temptations are the first, you might say, it's the first calling of his ministry is to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And when he comes back from that, uh, he calls his first disciples. And then there is um, uh, a kind of summary statement at the end of Matthew chapter 4 where he speaks about, the, where Matthew speaks about the, the nature and the scope of the ministry that Jesus is about ready to launch in, uh, uh, in uh, Judea and in Galilee. And it begins on at verse 23. So it's uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And I'm going to read right into chapter 5 because the uh, chapter distinctions in the Bible are, are, as you may know, are often very, you know, arbitrary. And they have, their their editors put them in there sort of to help us, but oftentimes uh, they're maybe in the wrong, wrong place. So here we go. This is the description of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is a large region, a geographic region. Chapter 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. He sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's that one verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that I'm going to, I'm praying that God will unfold for us in the next, this week and the next two weeks and teach us some things about what that means. But in order to understand it, I, I think we've got to set it up just a little bit. 
chapter 4, verse 23 and following is what we have as the general description of the ministry that Jesus conducted while he was on earth. And if you look at it, it's rather easy to discern that there are two parts to this ministry. There's word and there's deed. Jesus preached and he healed. It's, it's really, it couldn't be any clearer. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is what happens when Jesus comes. And that's what we have here. Jesus coming. Jesus beginning his ministry. The rule and reign of God begins when the king comes into his, into his realm. And Jesus has come. He's beginning what he came to do. And now he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. His teaching and preaching ministry is not always at all what we would think. It's not the, uh, you know, three points in a poem. It's not, um, it's not the idea of, uh, you, you know, here's, you know, three steps, four steps, ten steps about how you get saved. You actually look around in the, in the Gospels and you, you look uh, in vain to find that kind of teaching. Jesus' way of teaching the gospel, his way of presenting the gospel, isn't, isn't quite as linear as ours. We're Westerners. We're, we're children of the, the Enlightenment of the 18th century. We know how to think. And we think in linear fashions, logically. And therefore, when we come to describe the gospel, we really want to kind of get it down to, you know, some bite-sized points that we can... We can, that are sequential, that are logical, and that make sense. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That is the culture in which we live, and it's appropriate to translate the truth of the kingdom of God into the culture in which you live for the sake of the people who live in that culture. But this was a different culture. This was a, an Eastern mentality rather than a Western mentality. But folks did not think in quite as linear a fashion. They thought, you might say, more, we, we might use terms like more holistically, more, uh, more in a kind, of, um, a kind of circular way rather than linear. Um, people, people thought by experiencing rather than thinking. They thought by moving into something and, and then describing it rather than describing it and then inviting you to move in. And so Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, but he is also healing. And this is very clear. If this is indeed a summary statement of the ministry of Christ, then it's very clear that the, that the, that the ministry of the kingdom of God, the ministry of the church now, is to go forward on two legs. The ministry of the word and the ministry of deed. They are, as it were, the two sort of platforms, the two legs on which the truth of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward. And in the history of the church, we see lots of swings back and forth where sometimes people would emphasize the, the deeds, you know, just bring the cup of cold water, uh, just do, do good things, uh, care for people, and that's really the gospel. Well, that isn't really the gospel. That's 
the expression of the gospel that is absolutely necessary if the gospel is going to have authenticity and integrity, so much so that it's not even really an expression of the gospel. It's actually part of the gospel. In other parts of church history, you see the swing going over the way, and we're coming out of such a period. Some of us grew up in such a period, and now, thankfully, it's moving more towards the center. And the where we grew up was this idea that it's the preaching, it's the ministry of the word, it's teaching the Bible. That's what we have to do as the church. I certainly don't disagree. Absolutely do agree. But the, there, there is among us, brothers, and many of us are younger, many of us are sort of a little bit uh, on, you know, this side of whatever, and, uh, but it's very interesting when you talk to some of these young guys, like the guys right up here, they're going to tell you that if the gospel is not authenticated by deed, then the word is questionable. In other words, there always must be authenticating evidence of the truth of the gospel in the caring and in the love of people. The healing ministry of the church has taken expression over the centuries in what? In hospitals. Most of the hospitals that we know, their roots were, were, were that they were founded by churches. You've got some very, very significant, very famous hospitals in Memphis. And they've got names, that St. Jude, that tell you what? They tell you they were originally founded by, by, by churches. And that's the way it should be. Okay. Don't need to belabor that, but just want to make sure we understand it. Gospel goes forward on two legs, the way Jesus announces it, word and deed. And uh, a big crowd is following him from a large geographic area. He heals many of these people. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, when he sees the crowd, he goes up onto the mountainside and sits down. Very interesting. Just logistically and probably for good reason, he was going to address people there's a large group of them kind of like here. I don't know. I suspect maybe there were even more, many more people there that day. But the point was this, that he needed a little height and a little distance in order to be heard and seen. So he goes up on, on a mountainside, which probably is, if you've been to Israel, it's probably just a hill. It's a, a, a kind of a nice hill. And he's up there where the crowds are sort of laid out before him, kind of going down. The, the hillside rather gently. And he sits down. It's very interesting. Why would he sit down when he was about ready to teach? You know, I'm standing up here, and usually in our experience, most teachers stand up to teach. But in the, the time of, uh, uh, that Jesus lived, the scribes, the teachers, the elders would teach sitting down. It was called teaching ex cathedra later on in church history, teaching out cathedra's church, teaching out of the chair of authority, the seat of authority. And that's what Jesus was uh, doing um, here. His disciples come to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and this, this translation is is not great on that verse 2 because really what it says is it doesn't just say he began to teach them. It says, it says uh, literally or it, it, he opened his mouth to them. 
And the expression here actually in the original language is he spoke to them mouth to mouth. And this was a, a, a way of speaking in that time like we would say today he would speak heart to heart. So the indication here is that it's a very deep and significant teaching that's going on. This is not something that is just casual, not that Jesus ever did perhaps any casual teaching, but he's setting this up to be very significant. And indeed, what follows is what we call what? The Sermon on the Mount. And for Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have this very, very significant hunk of Jesus' teaching, which we presume was repeated. It, it, uh, I don't know if I'd use the term stump speech, but obviously the teaching that Jesus did, he would repeat in place to place. And this was one of the core parts of his teaching. Certainly Matthew thinks it's very important because he puts it right at the front end of Jesus' teaching. He's saying, you want to know what Jesus taught? Here it is. Sermon on the Mount. And a beloved part of Scripture that many of us have studied and uh, thought about contains such things as the Lord's Prayer. Um, It uh, tells us um, how significant it is that our deeds do indeed match our words. You know, there's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there are those who say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you. And he says that because they did not bear fruit in keeping with their profession of faith. In other words, Jesus says there, how do you know if you're my disciple? How do you know if my follower, you're my follower? Look at the fruit. The only way, he says, that legitimately one can judge even themselves and to say whether they're in or out of the kingdom, whether they're following the Lord or not, is by looking at the fruit of their lives. Because a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So he's got some very, very significant teaching here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he begins with this section we call the Beatitudes. These statements, several statements, depending upon how you count them, eight or nine of them, that say, in effect, blessed are those who... And then it gives a response, what, will, what happens to them out of their blessedness. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was Jesus speaking to the crowd... Or was he speaking to his disciples? It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. So what was he doing? Crowd or the disciples? You know the way I'd put it? I'd say he was teaching the disciples, but very, very intentionally in the presence of the crowd. In other words, he wants the crowd to hear this. Here's another way to say it. He wants those who are his immediate followers. Maybe that's like you and me this morning. We would say, I'm a follower of Christ. He wants us to hear this teaching. But curiously, he wants those who are just curious. Those who maybe don't understand what the gospel of the kingdom is. He wants them to hear it too. And very interestingly enough, he wants them to hear it in the presence of one another. This is very, very telling. When you have in one room men like this, and I don't know where you guys are coming from. Uh, You know, I presume that if you're here at 6.15 in the morning, you you believe something. (laughs) But on the other hand, I don't know. Maybe you've come because a friend brought you. 
And, and that's great. And you, honestly, you've been knocking around Christian churches all your life or something, but you don't know what it is you believe. That's great. Jesus would love that. He loves the dynamic of those who get it or think they get it and those who don't get it because he wants to clarify the needs of both. And here, I'm going to tell you something that maybe is new to you. The needs of both groups are exactly the same. There is not one way we should teach the Bible for those who are in the family and know the truth and another way we should teach it for those who are outside. That dichotomy has come along as a result probably of just the last hundred years of kind of revivalistic preaching in our own country. It is not the way the gospel should be taught. The gospel should be taught from the scriptures. The scriptures are taught. They draw in the stranger and they comfort and warn and admonish and encourage the one who's already in. Same truth. And that's what Jesus does here. The Beatitudes. If you and I were going to present the gospel, would we do this? Would we say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I mean, golly, it's a little bit like, um, it almost sounds a little downer, like, you know, a little bit gloomy. We, we want to present the gospel. You know, you want, to be, you want to be fulfilled. You want to be joyful. You want to be happy. Well, Jesus does say that. You want to be happy. Blessed are the, those. Happier those. But he catches us as he always does. If you want to understand the, t- the truth of Jesus' teaching and get beyond just the surface, just get beyond a little bit of what you heard in Sunday school, okay? Always look for the unexpected in his teaching. Always look for the surprise. And it's right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is the way Jesus begins to teach the gospel. Now, I'm, I'm jumping in. I'm sort of giving you a, a longer introduction to get into the first thing that I want to sec- suggest to you, first out of three things that the poor in spirit are. And that's the verse we're going to focus on. The poor in spirit. Who are they? Are we them? Do we think of ourselves as poor in spirit? I want to suggest to you that over these weeks that the poor in spirit are those who are honest about themselves. They recognize their own helplessness and they live in a certain degree of humility having been honest and recognizing their helplessness. So, honesty, helplessness, humility. Let's look at honesty for the time that we have left. You with me? You understand what we're doing? How we've set this up? This is important. Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to know. This is the way I'm going to go about teaching you the gospel. Poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is the person who knows they have nothing by which they can come and and please God. They They are needy. The poor in spirit is the one who internally recognizes his or her need. The poor in spirit is the one who says, I know I need God. That's why in Uh, A couple of translations of the Bible, I don't think they're much in use around here. 
But it says, that's the way it translates this verse. Blessed are those who know their need of God. I like that, actually. Blessed are those who know, not just intellectually know, but in their hearts know. The longest journey we're ever going to take, brothers, is from what to what? Longest journey from our head to our hearts. And Jesus is saying, if you really begin to grapple with our need, if we really begin to see how desperate we are for God, that God's just not a nice addition to our lives. He's not just something that fills up the gaps of where we can't help ourselves, but actually in our lives we are desperate for his presence and his reality. When we begin to see that, then we begin to be blessed and we begin to be happy. Honesty, that's the first step. I don't know how many of you are Shakespeare scholars, but uh, my son is, he's a... um, he was an English major in college and, you know, loved Shakespeare. And um, you, some of you may remember from Hamlet this quote. Polonius says it to Laertes. He says, to thine own self be true, lest ye be false to every man. In other words, he's saying if you're not honest with yourself, you can't be honest with anybody else. And that recognizing our poverty of spirit begins with an honest assessment of who we are. Who am I? Not who do I want you to think I am, but who am I? Chris, my son, says that Shakespeare puts on the, the lips of the most foolish people some of the most profound ideas, and he apparently does that again and again in his writing. Psalm 15, verse 2 says, Speak truth to my own heart. In other words, I can't speak truth to your heart until I begin to speak truth to my own heart. And truth here now, we need to right away from the beginning understand, sort of branch out our view of what truth is a little bit. Truth isn't just factual truth. Truth is truth of the heart, which always means truthful. In other words, a person who speaks the truth has a truthful heart. And it's the character of truthfulness that I believe honesty suggests and is necessary for us to recognize our own poverty in spirit. In other words, I've got to be honest with myself. I've got to be truthful to myself. Isn't this the problem with Saul and David? Remember Saul and David? Saul was the first king of Israel. And God gave him some specific commands about what he was to do and not do. And in one way... Saul disobeyed the Lord. He did not fulfill the exact requirements that God gave him. And as a result of that, the kingdom is taken away from Saul and given to David. Now, David was a man, it says, is after God's own heart. But what, what about the things that David did in his life? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. He lusted after a woman. He seduced her. He committed adultery when her husband, you know, came back and was too honorable to sleep with his own wife so that he could cover his, the pregnancy that resulted. He had the man put on the front lines of the army so that he would be killed when he went back to war. David shouldn't even been there. He should have been out with his troops in the field. He, what was he doing on the roof of his house looking at another roof over there? I don't know. He shouldn't be there. David was wrong. Wrong. Liar, adultery, murder. But he's called a man after God's own heart. And the kingdom is not taken from him. Why? Because Saul wanted to cover up his sin. 
He wasn't willing to be honest about it. Saul said to Samuel, okay, Samuel, I understand he was the judge who appointed him king. I know that you said that I, I'm not going to be king anymore, but Samuel, we're going back to the people right now, so please you know, just act like I'm still the king. See, Saul really wasn't dealing with it in his heart, was he? How about David? When Nathan comes to David and, and tells the parable of the lamb and so forth and, and convicts David of how much wrong he had done, what does David do? It says he strips his clothes, he he's, he's puts on ashes, you know, all the things that were symbols of mourning in those days. And he did this very publicly. He didn't care who knew because he knew he was wrong. He was honest with himself. So much so that da- the court, the people in David's court said to him, David, um, excuse me, uh, you're the king. Please, you know, kind of act like a king. If you don't mind, this is not, this is a little embarrassing. But David didn't care who saw him in his repentance. Because he was honest with himself, he was ready to be honest with others. And I will suggest to you, and this is much of the burden of what I want to say this morning and leave you with, is that honesty publicly publicly demonstrated in appropriate ways frees a country, a community, a church to be the people that God wants them to be. It's when we hide, when we hide and say, we hide behind our Sunday school smiles. It's when we do that, brothers, that we find that our churches, our communities, our Christian groups, our ministries kind of get, forgive me for using such a crass word, constipated. They get clogged up. That's what I want us to see. Here's, here's a great quote. This, this is a little early for this quote uh, in the morning because it's, it's going to make you think. One of the most um, best writers of the 20th century in America was a man named Joseph Conrad. He was originally uh, Russian, had a Russian name, and changed it to Conrad when he came to the United States, became a citizen. And he wrote a number of books that are very, very thoughtful, profound novels. And one of them is Lord Jim. I don't know how many of you have ever read Lord Jim. In Lord Jim, there is a narrator. His name is Marlowe. He kind of tells the story. And at one point in the story, they're dealing with this question of, of what does it mean for a man to be honest with himself? And this is what Marlowe says. For it is my belief that no man ever understands his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. Let me say that again. For it is my belief that no man ever understands his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. In other words, we don't want to know about ourselves. We don't want to be honest about ourselves. That's dangerous territory. And we're not sure we want to go there. So much so, brothers, that I believe that dishonesty is like kudzu. It just grows and it grows fast. And it covers up the truth very, very quickly. And we have to keep cutting it back daily. In other words, we daily need to to be doing business with the potential in our own hearts for dishonesty. 
Solzhenitsyn, another writer, famous Russian writer, said this. He said he was Russian and he hated totalitarianism. He hated communism. And he fought against it. He went to the gulag for many years of his life. And in the gulag, he became a Christian. And, and Solzhenitsyn said this. He said, in order for us to redeem the individual from totalitarianism, the first thing we have to do is teach him not to lie. And the reason he said that is because he saw that communism was full of lies. It was a lying philosophy from beginning to end. And that if you were a communist, you had to buy into a whole set of lies. Now, those of us who are Americans, we like to hear that. We agree. But the point is, it's not just lying about the state or lying about the social circumstances in which we live or the economic philosophy that governs our society. No, it's, it's lying about myself. It's lying about who I am. Solzhenitsyn said in another place that the line between good and evil is not out there somewhere. Okay, there's the line of good and evil. Over there is evil, and we're hopefully on the side of good over here. He said, no, the line of good and evil goes right through every man's heart. So my potential for wrong and my potential for evil is the honest thing about me. My potential to be very dishonest is the truth. And Jesus is saying, I cannot know the blessing of being a part of his kingdom until I really wrestle with that. I know that, a, that, that, that quite a number of you do not come to second regularly. That's what I, I've been told. And so I'm not going to repeat a whole lot of what I said on, on Sunday here. But my, my story... My personal story is a story in which I tried to be for a long time dishonest about myself in more and more subtle ways, including an addiction that I fell into, using pain medication inappropriately. And as I began to cover these things up and hide them, I began to erect a world I was, I was extremely competent, and everybody knew it. I led two churches, took one from nothing, zero, brand new, to 2,000 before I moved to a church that began with 1,000 people. That was its start, and we took it to 6,000 in just a few years. Great. Aren't I terrific? <laughs> and the truth is that growing in my heart was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of pain, and a lot of dissatisfaction with myself and what I was doing. There are all kinds of reasons for that that I, I won't necessarily go into, but I masked that pain. Very slowly, I started to use narcotic medicine, first legitimately and then illegitimately, to mask that pain. And it wasn't until I started to be honest about who I really was and what I was really doing, it wasn't until then that I, have, I began, for the first time in maybe 30 years, 25 or 30 years, I began to understand what it means to be blessed. There can be no blessedness if we're not honest with ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. Without truth, 
without truth in the inner person, as David says it in Psalm 51, his great psalm of confession, without truth in the inner man, there can be no presence and wonder and glory of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus flees from us when we're dishonest. Now, I, I didn't use drugs for 30 years. It was a much, much shorter period of time. But the buildup to that was a growing dishonesty about the things that really made me tick. And this story of dishonesty, it became the story of my life. It became the narrative, as it were, of, of my life is that I had these, this image that I needed to keep propagating. And that very need for that image was a kind of, uh, it, was, it, was, it was living a lie. There's a writer, an English writer by the name of Susan Harwich, and she writes a series of books that all kind of go with the title, The Glittering Image. And her point in that is saying, we all have a glittering image. We all have the image of what we would like to be, the person we want to portray ourselves to be, the person that we want um, others um, to, uh, to understand us to be. And we all live in a certain amount of fear that if you really, really understood me, you wouldn't like me. And so I very subtly begin to develop these ways of just portraying myself that aren't completely true. And I want to tell you, brothers, dear brothers, that is a death trap. It is a way down to unhappiness, to unblessedness, to personal pain. And and even if it doesn't come to all that much pain, it's, it's an empty life because Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And he honors truth in us. And he sends the Holy Spirit to us to be truthful about ourselves. And if we resist that spirit and we are not truthful about ourselves, Jesus can't abide with us. I'm not talking about whether you're a Christian or not or whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm just going to say we can't know Christ and the joy of his presence. Let me, let me read to you something that I wrote um, a couple years ago when I, after a conversation. This was a conversation with my son, the same son who's the Shakespeare guy. And we were talking about honesty. And my son, my son said this. This was after a lot of things had come undone in my life. And I was really grappling with how do I really be honest? Chris said, Dad, what is more important to you, to be thought well of or to be honest? Simple question. Very profound in its implications. What's more important? If I was honest, I would tell you that for many years it was much more important to me what you thought of me than whether I was honest. And I'm a Christian minister. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian minister. How's that? Then he went on. He said, honesty, this is, this is a 20, he was 23 at the time, 23-year-old kid. Honesty is too easily usurped by the need for approval. Whoa. Honesty does not need to be defended by many words.
But my being thought well of takes many words. Too many words. If I use too many words, it is a sign that honesty is slipping into the background of my life. And then he quoted the proverb to me. With many words, there is much danger. Jesus, who is the truth of God, the visible expression of the invisible God, is the not-hiddenness of God. Jesus is the one who came to reveal the truth about God, about the world, about us. He's the not-hiddenness. And he calls those of us who would follow him to begin to learn what it means not to be hidden as well. Jesus doesn't need me to think well of him. He is already well. And he wants to teach me in a certain way that I don't need you to approve of me. That when I start to be honest about who I am, my need for your approval actually goes down. And I said this, I think, Sunday night here, so if it's a repetition for you, forgive me. But I'm at a point in my life when I can honestly say to you, what you think of me is none of my business. And what I think of what you think of me will kill me. And the only thing that really in the end matters is what God thinks of me and what I think of me and probably what my wife thinks of me. Yeah, don't go home and tell your wife that, uh, you know, what she thinks of you is none of your business. That's, that probably won't go over too good. <laughs> Out of the wellness of Jesus, he made me well. Out of the honesty of Jesus, he, has, he is making me honest. Dishonesty, brothers, comes from pride and especially fear. Fear that I can't keep up with the glittering image. Fear that I need to project something to you to get you to approve of me, to get you to buy my product, to get you to think well of me. And there is so much posturing in our lives. It takes a lot of effort to live that way. (laughs) It takes a lot of effort to to kind of prop up our uh, image of ourselves that we want you to believe. Perfect love casts out fear. As you and I get to know the one who is the truth and the one who casts out the fear, then we experience a love that casts fear out. The story of my life in the last three years in some ways can be reduced to a very simple sentence. I am loved. I am so loved. And I have always believed that God is a God of love. I have always believed that God so loved the world. I've always believed that Jesus loves me. This I know. But I will tell you, I believed it without believing it. 
And what has happened to me, brothers, is the journey from the head to the heart. And oh, I hope you don't have to go through what I went through to take that journey. You know, when I was with Sandy and the other guys I told you we meet with last October, they wanted me to tell the whole story of what's been going on the last few years of my life. And I did. I kind of took a long time and I told them the whole story. And when I was done, there was a kind of silence. And Sandy was the one who spoke up. And he said, Skip, I don't know about these other guys, but I want to know how to get what you got without going through what you went through. (laughs) And I don't know if I know how to tell you to do that. I don't know. I want you to cast yourselves upon the waters of honesty, though, and see, as scary as it might be, where the Lord might take you. It cost me a lot, Carl Jung, the famous psychotherapist, said when he went through a very difficult period in his life. It cost me a lot to lose everything, but now I can begin to live again. And I I don't want you to lose everything, brothers. But I do want you to be prepared to do whatever it takes to learn how to have honesty in your heart. You know, do you know what, what happened to me is dishonesty produced a person who thought he was exceptional, among other things. And that exceptionality showed up in a lot of curious ways. It's like just what I did this morning. Remember the Buick? The announcement of the Buick? It's my Buick. It's the car the church has loaned me for while I'm here. And I got here, you know, about 6.15, and I couldn't find a place to park, and you know what? I'm the speaker. <laughs> I, better, I better park this car and get in there, right? I'm exceptional. I have a right to make a parking place. <laughs> Don't I? And do you know that one of the most freeing things in the world for me has been to begin to recognize that I am simply one more bozo on the bus. And also to begin to to realize that the healing is in the telling. The healing that has to go on in our lives from all the hurts and wounds of our childhood, all the things that made me me, all the reasons I did what I did, all the reasons I sought the approval of other people and performed for them, whatever it is, the healing is in the telling. Frederick Buechner, a wonderful writer, writes about Christian themes. He's just wonderful beautiful writer and he wrote a book toward the end of his career called Telling Secrets and in that book he deals with this very subject about the necessity of being honest and he says there are two things about me no one ever has known since for for a long long time since way back when it happened one is that my father committed suicide and the other is that when my daughter was a teenager, she almost died from anorexia. He said, I was so ashamed of these things that I could never talk about them. But then he said, as I began to talk about them with my friends, I saw that healing came to all of our lives because it helped them be more honest about the burdens that they carried 
about the deep things that really hurt them. Well, I would say that for several years now, I've been at the Graduate School of Honesty. Which is really the way of saying that I've been on that mountainside. And I've been listening to Jesus. I really mean it, guys. The presence of Jesus is everything. The presence of Christ in our lives is all in all. It is the blessedness. It is the sumum bonum of life. The very best that you can ever have is the presence of Christ. But he flees from darkness. And he loves the light that he brings. Am I sitting with the disciples? Or am I sitting with the crowd? Like I said, I don't think it matters. Sometimes I think I'm just a brand new believer. Been a Christian 45 years, but, and a minister for 30. But you know what? Maybe I'm just beginning. But I am so glad to be beginning with Jesus and being called and led into the wonder and beauty of truth. Truth in the inner being. It's not perfect, is it? Never will be. Lord, help us. Father, um, thank you so much for these men and their patience in listening. Thank you for the privilege of thinking about these things. Thank you, Lord, that you, you are the blessed one and you bring your blessedness to us, that you want us to see our poverty of spirit and that therefore you want us to see how desperate we need to be, desperately we need to be honest about what's going on in our own lives. Bring gospel clarity and gospel honesty to us, Father. Help us in our small groups or with our close friendships to begin to shout out the world, the culture, Memphis. It's all wrong when it makes me hide so much. And Help us to be your people, Lord, who love one another even more when we hear one another being honest. Free us. Free us from the devices and desires of our hearts and lead us in the way of truth. For Jesus' sake and glory, amen.